1: So I'm sat out in my garden, I'm looking at the lovely late summer sunlight coming through the plants and it's a really great time to reflect isn't it? You know everything's grown up and all your spring plans and all your big dreams for the garden have come to fruition or haven't. It's a great moment to sit back and just enjoy this kind of like pause in the year where everything just holds its breath and figure out what's worked and what hasn't. One thing that's worked really well is my little table. So I've got a patio table just outside the kitchen door, and I've got little terracotta pots on there because I think it looks really nice having this terracotta against the wood. But terracotta pots dry out really, really quickly, so I've put succulents in them. I've got echeverias and house leeks, sempervirums, that kind of thing. But for a bit of colour, I've tried two new bedding plants for me this year. One is a diacea, which is a lovely South African plant with like real kind of pillar box red flowers. It's a colour that I absolutely love. And the other is Skyvola which is a fan flower. They're from Australia and they make these cool little kind of scrambling trailing but not unruly, just sort of gently kind of weave the way around the succulents a bit. They're really cool, really unusual. Very, very drought tolerant as well. I love plants that kind of forgive me when I forget to water them. You know, they wilt a bit. Water them 10 minutes later, bang. It's looking great again. But with autumn drawing closer and closer, we thought that this week we'd explore late summer gardens with all their lushness, their colour, their vibrancy, and consider what we can get up to in the garden now to set us up for autumn, winter, and even spring. First up, we're travelling to Artist Garden Wisley to take a look at their seed collection process and get their tips on how to replicate it all at home.
2: We have started Collecting in earnest lots of salvia nemorosa this year, lots of salvia nemorosa, so I hope the members are going to want salvia nemorosa.
1: Before we chat with gardener, chef and food writer Kathy Slack about how we can get the best out of the fruit and veg we've grown.
3: In August I feel like you have so many courgettes, for example, that... The task is not about necessarily your favourite ways of using the courgettes, but about what will use most courgettes.
1: And finally, garden historian Twig's Way is back with us to explain what exactly happened with allotments from the early 1900s until now.
4: For this new generation coming of age in the 60s, allotments are just this awful memory of going out there as a five-year-old on a freezing cold December morning and having to do something on the allotments.
1: You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Gareth Richards. We're off to the seed room at Wisley, which is absolutely buzzing with activity at the moment, to get advice on how to best harvest our seeds this August.
5: My name is Heather Cook, and I'm the team leader for Seed and Wellbeing. Hello, my name is Lucy Runitska, and I work in the
2: Seed and Wellbeing team, specialising in the seed collecting, and uh, I've worked for the RHS for, well, it's 29 years, not quite 30, but it will be next January.
5: So we're standing in the seed room at the moment, and this is our workroom, and we're standing in front of a big table which has got about 30 boxes on it. Each box is a cardboard box lined with paper, and it contains the seed that we've collected this year from around the garden. So we've got a mixture of all sorts of different types of seeds with different textures and different seed heads, annuals, perennials, herbaceous perennials, seed from bulbs. Yep, each one has a label with its name on and the date that we collected it and the bed number. Right in front of us, we've got Papaver somniferum, so that's opium poppy. And next to it, we've got the Papaver rhoeas, which is the common poppy. the kind of like the usual sort of bright red poppy that you get in your garden. This year, we're trying to collect more wild flowers with the emphasis on kind of longer grass and a more naturalistic style of planting so that people can you know, create a nice meadow in their own gardens at home.
2: We've still got lots of seed that we're, we're waiting to ripen, but we have started collecting in earnest lots of Salvia nemorosa this year, lots of Salvia nemorosa, so I hope the members are going to want Salvia nemorosa, <laughs> <laughs> because we've got plenty of it. We do tend to find that our members appreciate the annuals because they're obviously easy to grow, quick results um, so that seems to be quite good as an all-rounder but it's really important uh, when we're compiling our our seed list we have to remember that we have a, a wide range of ability amongst our membership so we want to aim to appeal to everybody I think it's really important to give people quite
5: a good variety. So, so now that it's August, if you're doing this from home, then the things that you can look out for, for example, are um, the ripening of the seed pods. And quite typically what will happen is the, the flower petals will all drop off and you should see a developing seed pod. And quite typically that will change colour. It will go from a green to a sort of a buff brownie colour. It may start to split or twist and it really depends on the, the type of seed dispersal as to how quickly you have to get in there to collect the seeds. So if, for example, it's an explosive seed, so, for example, euphorbias or lupins or geraniums, they're quite explosive, so you need to get in quite quickly and keep checking the seed pods, and as soon as they start to turn brown, you need to collect those straight away. Others, such as poppies or nigella, for example, you'll see the seed pods slowly start to turn brown and they will actually hold on to their seed for quite a long time. And you can actually see the seed pods start to split. Well, you can even hear the seed rattling in the pod actually. And you can then collect those once they're thoroughly kind of really quite brown. And you can hear that seed rattling in the pod. And then you can just go out with a paper bag and just collect the seed heads. For something like digitalis, you'd probably need to cut the flower spike. And again, you would wait for the seed pods, each little seed pod ripening up the stem, to go a brown colour and split and open. And in the case of digitalis, you can actually look into the seed pods and actually see the seed. You'd cut it off at the base and then cover it with a bag so you don't lose any of the seed and then invert it. And the seed will all just literally pour out of the seed pods and that's an easy one to collect, actually. Cosmos you could collect. With Cosmos, all the petals will fall off and you'll get this kind of, like, starry, structure the seed is very dark and the seed is quite hard as well so that's another feature that you're looking for is you're looking for seed pods that turn a different color and split and within them you would normally expect the seed to be a dark color as well and for it to be quite hard so that's another way you can pour some seed onto your hand and kind of like feel it with your fingers if it feels quite hard normally that means it's ripe We also
2: collect seed from berries so that seed obviously comes in quite wet and um, we put it in the fridge to start with and then what we do is we run it under the tap in a sieve and just break it down with the water and a sort of rubbing action to extract the the seed. One good example, and, and it's quite a nice one to do, is Viburnum betulifolium. We do tend to get quite a lot of seed from that, don't we? That's a nice um, bright
3: red
5: berry, is, isn't it? It is its very attractive.
3: And um,
2: viburnum is obviously a shrub. Mm. Once, Once we've sort of done that, it's important to roll it out on some blotting paper. We do run a dehumidifier in our drying room. But apart from that, there's no other artificial means of, of drying. Natural is the best way. It seems to keep the seed much more viable, which is really important. <laughs>
5: So once we've, once we've collected our seed and we've brought it in, we've reduced it down and it's dried out in cardboard boxes lined with paper. That can take as little as six weeks or it depends on really what the weather is like, but we keep our seed in a drying room. We have a dehumidifier and we keep the temperature as cool as possible and obviously as dry as possible and then that dries out the seed. It won't be until next season so it'll be probably next March that we'll then give it the final clean so once you've got rid of the big bits of chaff you can then use a pair of tweezers and just tweezer off the the smaller pieces and then once you've got your seed you can then decant it into like a a paper envelope making sure that you write down the name of the plant and the date because the older the seed, the less likely it is to germinate. So it's always good to use as fresh a seed as you can. I grow a lot of calendula mm. at home, mm. and nigella, and poppies, and hesperus, sweet rocket, and I bring all that in. I also grow cosmos, which I collect the seed and bring it in. Would you say it's fair to say we do quite a lot of overtime? <laughs> 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 just, You're listening to this, yeah. Sheila. I just wanted to make a note of that.
2: No, I mean we we, we laugh, but it, it, it's just because it's what we love to do, isn't it? You know, so and that's. It's quite
5: addictive, actually, it is. isn't it? Seed collecting. Yeah, yeah. We should do a little warning, shouldn't we? You know, yeah, uh, this, yeah, can yeah, be a, this could be a, a... seed collecting <laughs> can be addictive.
4: <laughs> <laughs> oh.
1: Thanks, there, to Heather and Lucy. You can find more information about the RHS Member seed scheme in our show notes. The scheme, which has been running for over hundred years, gives members the exclusive opportunity to buy great value seeds harvested from RHS gardens. So besides seed harvesting, my late August to-do list includes looking at bulb catalogues. Now is the perfect time to get your bulb orders in, Get in early because you get the maximum choice and also you can get the earliest blooms as well, particularly for things like early daffodils, crocuses and things like that. It's a really good time to get them ordered so you can get them planted in September. If you haven't pruned your wisteria, good time to do it as well. So just don't worry too much about counting the buds. It's quite old fashioned advice, I think, to, you know, count back six buds when you've got this gigantic kind of sprawling plant. Six buds is a good guide, but actually just taking off that kind of long, whippy stuff to make it a bit more manageable. And then you can be a bit more precise in winter when the leaves have fallen off. And while there's always tasks to be completed in the garden, one of the best parts about this time of year is getting, as i mentioned before, to kind of sit back and enjoy all the work you've put in over the growing season. It's a time of creating bouquets from the cut flowers you've grown, or putting together a really tasty summer meal from all your fresh fruit and veg. And, you know, especially now when my allotment is bursting with crops to harvest, I always try and waste as little as possible. You know, I really want to get everything from the plot to the plate. So that often means getting creative with the ways you prepare and you eat these plants. So here with us is kitchen gardener and food writer Cathy Slack with her top tips for getting the most out of your summer fruit and veg.
3: I have a serious veg obsession and it came from an unlikely place. It came from... A major career change, about 10 or 12 years ago, I used to work in advertising in London, and I had what appeared to be a very high powered, very glamorous, fast living, rat race career. I never saw a tree, I never looked at a leaf, I'd never grown anything. And so predictably, it's such a cliche, I had the rat race breakdown and escaped to the countryside to try and build a new life and remember who I was again because I'd completely lost myself and I was I say it with a wry smile but I was in bed for nearly a year and it was dreadful and depression and anxiety and there were a lot of drugs and there was a lot of therapy but the veg patch which I didn't know I loved until I threw some seeds into a bare patch of soil in our new garden one day, and they grew. And I know it sounds glib, but they sort of saved my life. When you feel like the world is falling down around your ears, when you feel like there might not be another dawn, and then you notice that a tiny little seed that you planted last week has germinated, that there's life where there wasn't life before, that you have grown something. I mean, you haven't, nature has, but you feel like it's you. Then that feeling of empowerment and agency and progress is so powerful when the rest of your life is not like that. When you're in a state when you can't persuade yourself to get in the shower, Seeing a seed germinate changes everything, or it did for me anyway. And so I'm in love with them. And I love writing recipes from the little seeds that turn into great kilos of courgettes and what am I gonna do with them all? And I find great inspiration creatively as well as peace and calm in the veg patch. Some of my favourite ways to use the harvest at the moment, well, it's kind of a question of necessity in August, because in August, I feel like you have so many courgettes, for example, that the task is not about necessarily your favorite ways of using the courgettes, but about what will use most courgettes. So my latest one with the courgettes is to slice them very finely and cook them quite hard and fast in a lot of olive oil. And you keep doing, that; you keep stirring them and it takes maybe 40 minutes, but they reduce to this glossy thick almost creamy sauce and they reduce massively so you can make a kilo start with a kilo of courgettes and you'll end up with enough to serve two people it's wonderful and it's really intensely flavored and it's just salt and olive oil and courgettes and then from that you can put that on toast or you can use it as a pasta sauce or you can use it as a dip a bit like a courgette version of baba ganoush So that's one of my favorite at the moment. And then, well, I'm not used to having kale this early in the year, but I have got kale this early in the year. And for me, it's too soon to be wilting or roasting kale. It's too warm for that. So instead I do a kale salad, which again, uses loads and loads of kale and you strip the stems from the leaves, and then you really, really finely slice the leaves and toss them in olive oil and lemon juice and kind of massage them and they really break down. And I know it sounds a bit unpleasant to eat raw kale, but actually it's completely delicious once you've been through this marinating process and it's soft and sweet and lovely. You could put feta on it or sometimes I toss cherries through it, which are brilliant at the moment, with nuts and uh, pumpkin seeds and things like that. It's such a flexible dish. There's a few different ways that you can use veg in a slightly unexpected way. I'm not a big one for growing very unexpected crops. Like, I'm not gonna try and grow a watermelon. I like the slightly traditional cottage gardeny vibe to my veg patch but that doesn't mean there isn't opportunity. So with for example the courgettes they're on my mind because there's so many courgettes at the moment. Courgette leaves are brilliant for wrapping fish in and like you would in foil if you were going to steam them, or maybe a banana leaf, for example, but use a courgette instead. You wouldn't necessarily want to eat leaves, but they work brilliantly to enclose moisture and flavours. Somehow it's more theatrical than a piece of foil. So that's one of my more unusual ways. But then there's always opportunity, especially as we get into September with seed pods, So I have a lot of nasturtians growing, but the nasturtian seed heads are amazing. When they're still green, pick them, and you can quick pickle them, but you can salt them as well. And they're a bit like a poor man's caper, if you like, and they've got that lovely peppery tang that you want in that situation. So they're really good doers. Similarly, if your I don't know why I'm saying if but when your coriander goes to seed which mine always does at this time of year because of the heat these seed pods on the top of the bolted coriander are so delicious when they're green it's just like this hit of green coriander flavor it sort of explodes in your mouth they're really delicious so I recommend those topped on all sorts of things and then finally on a similar vein my bronze fennel which I planted in the flower bed and has now completely taken over they get really huge but the yellow pollen heavy flowers on the top of that are such a burst of aniseed they work really well on top of like a lemon drizzle cake or something like that. Or put the fennel seeds into a cake and then drizzle the pollen fronds on top and it's delicious. I would say when it comes to August, my main message is don't panic. <laughs> Enjoy it. It can feel like a sort of wonderful tyranny at this time of year because there's so much produce coming out of the garden. You can feel a bit overwhelmed by it. But instead, I think it's better to look at what you've done. Look at what you and nature have made. And if you don't use everything, if you end up giving stuff away, then that's still a huge joy. I'd much rather rock up at somebody's house with an armful of courgettes and a bunch of kale than a bunch of flowers and a box of chocolates. So just don't sweat it and enjoy this time rather than find it stressful.
1: Kathy's the author of From the Veg Patch, a cookbook with over 100 recipes that focus on the 10 different vegetables you can easily grow in your garden. We've included a link in the show notes. One of my favourite ways to cook some of the veg that I'm harvesting at this time of year, for example, is runner beans. I've only got one TP of them this year, so I'm not getting tons and tons, but there's a fairly steady supply. So what I like to do is I pick them and I chop them up and I put them in with my pasta for the last five minutes of cooking, which is brilliant because it just adds that extra level of veg to the diet. It's really tasty. You're not wasting just having a few and it's good for your energy bills as well. Speaking of growing and eating fruit and veg, for our last story of the day, we're delving back into allotments. Two weeks ago, garden historian Twigsway chatted with us about how allotments became a mainstay here in the UK. And she's back today to fill us in on the second part of that history, the many ups and downs of allotment popularity through the 20th century and into the present. She'll start us off with what happened during the First World War.
4: Wars actually had campaigns to increase allotment provision because they needed to suddenly increase home food production. Now almost everyone has heard of the Dig for Victory campaign which was the Second World War campaign but we also had one in the First World War It doesn't start at the beginning of the First World War because two reasons, really. The government hasn't really thought about allotments in the way that it can provide food for everyone, and also it isn't aware of the fact that we are about to be blockaded. They haven't dealt with those issues before. We did have a Napoleonic glitch when we had to up food production at the farming level, but the government hasn't really thought before about the role allotments can play, in providing food if there is a blockade and it isn't until the beginning of 1917 that we have the threat of a blockade with the u-boats and it's that very moment that very month kind of thing that Kaiser Wilhelm talks about blockading the food with the u-boats that there is then a campaign to increase allotment numbers and get people out onto the allotments And that means that when the same thing happens again in 1939, by which time we are even more reliant on imported food than we were in 1917, the allotment provision very rapidly was increased. So public parks, royal parks, you know, waste areas, areas that had been put aside for house building in that huge 1930s kind of house building boom. So all of those areas were immediately converted into allotments. And there was an aim that there would be one allotment for every five households. So very sadly, at the end of indeed both wars, you get all these Provisional allotments, which have been set up temporarily, they are just pulled away from under you. In the First World War, basically, within the season, you, you still had crops on the land, and they were saying, no, you can't come on here anymore, it's not an allotment, you know. Second World War, they're a little bit more sensitive to that, partly because, you know, representatives of allotment holders saw what happened the first time, and they said, you've got to give us a little bit more time to get off. Now life changes a lot through the 1950s and 60s. By the time you've got into the 1960s, basically allotments for this new generation coming of age in the 60s, allotments are just this awful memory of going out there as a five-year-old on a freezing cold December morning and having to do something on the allotments. It's a wartime memory. They are associated with kind of You know poverty and war and just the whole dreadfulness of the five years of shortages and rationing and all the rest of it and also you've got these new things you've got you know far more tinned food coming in and in fact adverts at the end of the war say things like you know at the moment you've still got to grow your peas on the allotment but soon you will be able to get bachelor's peas in tins again won't it be wonderful you know And then, of course, we have things come in like smash means mash for potatoes. And you have freezers. People start having freezers and they start having fridges. They start buying frozen food. They start buying more exotic foods that perhaps you can't necessarily grow in this country. And the whole thing changes. You know, new Britain, new classes. And the allotments fall into decay. There are simply, at that stage, too many allotments for the number of people who want an allotment. And so they become very weedy, they become very overgrown, and they become associated with this older generation, particularly of men. And what's interesting to me is there's a report on it by a a Professor Thorpe of Birmingham, who's writing on behalf of the government, and he recommends that allotment numbers are reduced heavily by at least a third, and that the ones that we have left are redesigned So there's none of this kind of do-it-yourself attitude, you know, you don't just make your own shed and prop up a compost heap with some old corrugated iron and all the rest of it. But everyone should be immaculate and they should all be the same. And again, it's very, very much about social control, but it's also about the value of building land. And that's what they want. They want the allotments for building land because... If you think about where they are in a typical town, when they were created, many of these allotments, created in the 1939 to 44 period, and they were created in areas, not just the public parks, but the areas that had been earmarked for building. And they were the areas that made a little kind of donut shape around the outside of the cities. So the cities all became ringed with allotments, literally like a donut. And that, of course, becomes the most valuable area for building on. And that's why we start get turned off the allotments. It's the value of the land. So one of the things that's going to save the allotments under this, you know, vast pressure for building is the grow your own food movements. So. The first component, before we even invent kind of GM and air miles and all the rest of it, the first component is very much Friends of the Earth driven. This idea that everybody should be able to access land. We're really going back to the basics. Alongside that, we have an introduction of new communities coming in who can't necessarily buy the food that they want. They've come from other countries. At that stage, it, you know, you could turn up at the green grocers and if you wanted anything other than Brussels sprouts and beetroot, you were... Yeah. You know, out of luck, I'm afraid. We also, and I absolutely, this is so important, the good life on television. It was all about a couple who decide to give up their kind of, you know, their jobs and grow all their own food, milk their own goats, you know, grow their own pigs, all the rest of it, knit their own yoghurt, as people used to say. So that was an incredibly successful television series and really hit the zeitgeist and was so important. allotments. Everybody went down the allotment. It was incredible. That's not to say pressure went away. Pressure was still there. We lost so many allotments during those decades. But we then start to get really serious concerns about genetic modification, air miles, and also our disassociation from our food sources. And then, of course, we roll through to now, even before COVID, concerns about people not having access to the outside space, biodiversity, wildlife. So the re- revival of interest in allotments and the high demand for allotments now is really driven by such a package, you know, a huge package of different features, wants, needs. The allotment can answer and address and contribute to in society. They just hit every single need that we kind of have. Open space, wildlife, community, diversity, provision of our own needs, healthy food, everything.
1: That was Twig's Way. You can find a link to her book, Allotments, in our show notes. And if you're keen to learn more about the history of allotments, check out our show from two weeks ago called Back on the Allotment. Well, that's about it for today. But before you go, a quick reminder. Starting in September, we're hosting a festival of flavours across all RHS gardens to celebrate the fruits of our labours and the plethora of ways we can prepare and eat the food that we grow. The first event will take place at RHS Garden Bridgewater on the 8th of September and the final event will take place at Wisley on the 15th of October. You can find details about the schedule and how to get involved in our show notes. Also, just a quick reminder, we have a podcast email address. It's podcast at rhs.org.uk where you can send us your reactions to stories as well as ideas for what you'd like to hear more of in the show. So that's podcast at ihs.org.uk. That's all for now. So for me, Gareth Richards, goodbye. Thanks for listening.